It's Baxi's Musical Podcast. Hey, here's something you might not know. Whenever a solo artist records a solo record, he's not always doing it solo. Sometimes the solo artist needs help. In other words, maybe there's always somebody else involved with something. Maybe it's a producer or another songwriter or another musician, somebody who's capable of doing things that the other guy doesn't feel entirely comfortable doing himself. It happens all the time. It's also a fact that once you establish a chemistry with a guy, you sometimes have him back for another round. Maybe it's even for a bunch of rounds. And once that happens, other people take notice and say, hey, look, if that guy keeps using that guy, then maybe that guy could help out that guy, and maybe that guy could help out me. That's what happened between Todd Rundgren and my guest today, bass player Kasim Sultan. Between joining the band Utopia with Rundgren in the 1970s to playing bass on Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell, which was also produced by Todd Rundgren, Kasim Sultan's reputation has grown by leaps and bounds over the decades. Playing with Hall & Oates, Cheap Trick, Patti Smith, Patti Smythe, Blue Oyster Cult, and the new cars following the death of Benjamin Orr. Kasim Sultan has got a fabulous career going for him. Kasim Sultan just released his latest new solo record called Kasim 2021, and he's currently back on tour with Todd Rundgren. This is my conversation with the legendary Kasim Sultan on Baxi's Musical Podcast. How you doing? I am well, and you? I am very, very good. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to talk to you. I, I, congratulations on the new record. I've been, uh, I've been listening in Thank you. to it the last couple of days, Chasm 2021. It's a great-sounding record, and I, uh, I love the single Fast Car. I'm, I've been earworming the shit out of that song the last couple of days. Oh, that's great. It's great. I love it. You know, I'm a, I'm a sucker for really well-done power pop with a lot of melody and harmony, and that, that's, uh-huh. that's a great one. Blame somebody else is good. Uh, love the message on uh, more love. They're all really great songs, but the, the, the one song on the album that I was really pleased to see is how you closed it with, uh, Nick Lowe's what's so funny about peace, love and understanding. That's a great, great Uh song. And and I love the way you arranged that one, uh, uh, you know, to close things out. It's a good choice. Thank you. Um, that was always, you know, the past few solo records, um, I, 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 I pick a, song or two a cover song that that kind of speaks to me and uh and i throw that in the mix uh and see you know see if it fits in the record this one was uh was a suggestion actually by uh the the my producer phil Thornalley, who uh who said you know uh you want to do a cover song let's let's throw a few ideas around and he came up with peace love and understanding because at that time we really didn't have um well we didn't have fast car on the record right. when we recorded peace love and understanding so it was like you know that was the aggressive up tempo in your face uh you know uh, full pedal to the metal song um and uh, and it worked really well and then when you know when the record was done we just we just I, I just thought actually that it was a nice bookend uh to Start the record with a song called "More Love," and then close the record with uh, "What's So Funny About Peace, Love, and Understanding." Yeah, the the sequencing of the album is is very well done, and I know a lot of people don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about that, but it no. really is 
one of those things that is is kind of important. It, sometimes it can make or break a record. Well, you know, it's old school. Uh, it, it's it, I don't know how many people actually sit down and listen to a record top to bottom like like I used to do when I was you know when I was younger. And I, I for the most part, I still do. I I try not to skip around because uh, out of respect for whatever artist I'm listening to. There's a reason why they put a record together the way they do, and it's because that's that to to them it makes artistic sense. So um, so yeah, I, I just like to respect the artist's uh, idea of how things should be consumed. Right, and yeah, you know, there was also a time where there was some cookie cutter approach where you know the second song of the album was always the single followed up by the ballad, and yeah, you know, did have someone say, "No, look, we're going to do it my way." I think is I think it's a it's it's a cool change. Oh, sure, man. Absolutely. I, I, you know, the, the record company who uh, I'm really pleased to be working with uh, Deco Records, the people at Deco are very, very, they're really kind and very artist, you know, artist centric label. And uh, uh, they, they listen to, to the artist as opposed to telling the artist what to do. <laughs> um, so in any case, um, they, they wanted Fast Car as the first single. And, uh, and I said, well, you know, I, I, I understand where that idea comes from. However, uh, it's not the best indication of what the rest of the record is like. And I really wanted people to have a, uh, kind of a, uh, the, the broadest palette that they possibly could have for what the rest of the record was going to sound like. And that's why I, I kind of said, I'd really like to see, uh, more love is the first single. And of course, much to not 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 to my chagrin, but to my surprise, um, every interview that I do, the, the the guys are always saying, "I love that song, Fast Car. It's a great song. <laughs> it's a really great song." And, and so there you go. What do I know? <laughs> so who who helped you out on this record? I think Prairie Prince played on this, right? Yeah, Prairie's on a couple of tracks. Uh, actually, Prairie plays on Fast Car. That's yeah. Prairie on drums. And uh, uh, John Siegler, a uh, bass player from the original Utopia, mm-hmm. plays bass on uh, on a track. Um, Mickey Curry, uh, who's uh, a, a Connecticut boy um, and plays with Brian Adams. So, uh, Mickey, Mickey Curry plays drums on a couple of tracks. Right. And Keith Scott, Brian's, uh, Brian's guitar player, plays, uh, plays on, on a track. And Gil Asayas from uh, the the Utopia reunion tour and from this current tour that I'm on with Todd Rundgren, he plays uh, synthesizer on a track as well. Yeah. A few months ago, I talked to Fee Wabel and we were actually talking about Prairie Prince off the, uh, off the air in the, uh, in the interview. And I, and, and I had been a big fan I've been a big fan of XTC, which I know Todd was, was uh, involved in. And Prairie Prince is like one uh-huh. of those drummers that, you know, just doesn't get, the notice that he he really deserves. That guy's such a great drummer, and and as a and as a bass player, I'm sure you, you. I mean, you have to pick up on that. Well, you know, Prairie and I have been working together for almost thirty years now, and uh, I, I I love I love playing with Prairie. He's a great person. You know, uh, a lot of times you could be a you could be a wonderful musician. You could be a technically proficient and play the crap out of whatever instrument you 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 decide to play but if you're not a if you're not a really good person and easy to get along with sometimes that uh that in and of itself is enough to turn people off but prairie 
is such a sweetheart. He's such a warm-hearted, good soul um, that that makes his playing even playing with him even better. Yeah. You know, I, I try to do as much research uh, in, in these interviews as, as best I can. And and yeah. you know, the one thing that you know you can't help but notice uh, when you're researching uh, you is that uh, you must have Todd Rundgren on speed dial. <laughs> or, or, <laughs> I don't know about that. I, I mean, uh, what about Todd, like a, what about Todd, a me- medical Todd, proxy? Would Todd, you be would you be able to make health decisions for him? <laughs> um, uh, uh, Todd actually does not an, uh, does not own a cell phone. Really? Um, so yeah, there is no speed dial when it comes. You send him an email and hope that you get an answer. Wow. Um, but I've I've been working with Todd now uh, for forty five years. So wow. um, I guess you know I guess uh, I'm doing something right. I don't know. I, yeah. I I don't think I'd be working with him all that that time if I if he wasn't comfortable with me and I didn't bring something to the table that. Uh, that he uh, he finds um, important to his work. How did uh, how did that relationship start? Did it, did it start when you were working with uh, Cherry Vanilla? Um, yeah, it did. Uh, I, I I was uh, I, I was playing piano with with Cherry Vanilla, who was at the time uh, kind of a uh, rock poetress, uh, rock singer slash poetress in the New York City area. That was her night job. Her day job was um, the publicist for Main Man Records, which was David, David Bowie's Bowie, yeah. uh, label. Um, so Cherry, uh, I, 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 you know, through a series of, uh, of just happy accidents, got into uh, Cherry's band as her piano player um, and managed to hook myself into a, a group of musicians in the New York area that heard a lot about other, or, uh, other bands and other auditions. That's how I found out that Todd was looking for a bass player. Um, I just I, I made a phone call to a guy by the name of Michael Kamen, who um, was very, a very, very popular uh, musician in the New York area uh, in the in the late 60s and 70s. And um, Michael, uh, I said that uh, I'd like to audition for the Todd Rundgren uh, gig that he had heard of. Right. And he said, you play, he said, I don't know that you're a bass player. He said, I thought you were a piano player. <laughs> and I said, well, um, actually bass is my first instrument. Uh, he said, okay, I'll recommend you. <laughs> so then he <laughs> called Roger Powell and recommended me to Roger, who was putting the auditions together. I got a call the next day from Roger and got invited up to Woodstock. And, uh, yeah, I just, uh, I learned a bunch of utopia songs over, uh, overnight. Uh, played for uh, for the band the next day. Wow! And wound up with the gig at 20 years old. You know, it's uh, it's funny. I, I remember back to the early 90s, and uh, I remember mm-hmm. people tripping all over themselves over the band Weezer. Like, and and people were saying, "Oh my God, they're so original!" And I'm listening to them. I'm saying, they've just ripped off everything about Utopia. That, <laughs> that's a band that was like that. Their first album sounded so much like Utopia to me. It's it. It's it's interesting. You don't. I don't know if a lot of people realize the kind of influence that you guys had on on pop music at the time. There's a lot of replication in the '80s of that band. It, like particularly that uh, like that that self titled album with you know Hammer in My Heart and and uh, uh-huh. uh, you know Feet Don't Fail Me Now. Those yeah. those songs are are typical, real catchy melodic 
Todd Rundgren songs. But you saw that kind of thing happen over and over again over the years. Very influential band. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. It's a real, really a two-sided coin. We never, we never had the 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 mass appeal of uh, of of a, of say a band like Weezer or you know any other you know really popular band in the in the mid '80s to uh, to late '80s. But um, the thing that that I treasure most about that band is other musicians that I admire that come up to me and say, you know, I really love your work with Utopia. Yeah. And that to me, you know, you can't, you just can't buy that kind of, uh, uh, of respect. And so while we didn't sell millions of records, um, I certainly, uh, got the props, uh, within my own, from my own peer group. And, yeah. and sometimes that, you know, that matters more in life than, are you driving a Lamborghini or a Ferrari or, you know, right. or a Ford Escort? But then but then sometimes you do land in a situation where you do sell a lot of records. And, and uh, uh, not too long ago, I talked to Alan Foley. We were talking about uh, you uh-huh. know, Meatloaf and Bad Out of Hell and, and that experience yeah. between him and and, uh, and Jim Steinman. And, and I know you were, I mean, you played on that record. You were, I, I think at some point you were his, correct me if I'm wrong, his musical director, um, you know, I was after that, yeah. after that, tell me what that, what that experience was like, because it, to me, meatloaf is like, like an improbable success story and a slow burning success story. But once it hit, it was absolutely unstoppable. Um, we did that record. We started, uh, we started that record and I, I, I'm pretty sure it was 1976. I had only been in the band for maybe six months. Right. And, uh, and Todd, uh, phone rang, uh, in my, the house that I was renting, uh, up in Woodstock. And Todd said, uh, I have, I'm producing a record. Uh, would you, do you want to play bass on it? And I was like, yeah, sure. He said, okay, show up to the studio tomorrow, uh, at one o'clock. And, uh, you know, we'll start learning the material. I show up and I meet Meatloaf, Jim Steinman, Ellen Foley, and Rory Dodd, the other background singer. Um, and Jim played the entire record uh, for, for myself, Todd, Roy Bitten, uh, the p- piano player for the E Street Band, and Max Weinberg, the drummer for the E Street Band. Right. That was the band. So <laughs> we learned that that entire record as a four-piece band. Uh, we went into the studio a couple weeks later after we played the songs, uh, and uh, we recorded that entire record in about two weeks. And I, th- I thought at the, at the end of those two weeks, at the end of the recording sessions, uh, I, I thought I would never hear that music again. <laughs> I, I, I will never hear these songs again. I will forget them uh, within, you know, a month. And that's it. Uh, you know, just uh, just it was a good experience for me. It was one of the first albums that I recorded. Right. So. um so about a year and a half later, maybe two years later, I'm I'm driving in my car up to Woodstock to start a Utopia record or Utopia tour, and I'm listening to the radio, uh, FM radio in my car, and I hear something that is vaguely familiar on the <laughs> dial, and I, and I could not, for the life of me, place where I had heard the music before, and then it finally dawned on me that was the record that I had done a year and a half earlier with that guy Meatloaf and Jim Steinman. And how lucky are they that they got their record on the radio? Meanwhile, cut to <laughs> today, 
and it is one of the biggest selling records of all time. Yeah. And just that alone, the, the, I mean, how many people can say that they have played on one of five of the all time biggest selling records in recorded history? So, yeah, I mean, it, I'm very, very proud. I hope, I hope you got paid like you were playing on one of the biggest selling records of all time. The funny thing is, is nobody, there, there was only a couple of people who made any money from that record, and I was not one of them. Oh, my God. Really? <laughs> yeah, wow. I was not one of them, no, <laughs> unfortunately. That's okay. But you went back and forth, and you, you played with Utopia again, and you did a lot of, you did a lot of touring with, uh, with a lot of people. I, I was reading on, on Wikipedia. I, I don't know of too many people that have played with both Patti Smith and Patti Smythe in the same career. Not too many. Not too many. <laughs> not, not too many. And, and now, to, to be honest with you, Dax, that's like the op- opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of <laughs> musical genres. Um, you know, Patty does what Patty Smith does, what she does. And Patty Smythe does what she does. And they, you know, they, they're kind of polar opposite. Um, so, <laughs> that's, uh, that's it, for but sure. it, it, you know, it's a, it's a testament to my playing that uh that i can i could do something like that and i'm i'm very proud of all the artists that i've contributed to and and played with over the years so i want to ask you a, a question and it's and it's kind of a rumor and maybe you you can answer this or maybe you don't feel comfortable answering answering it's totally up to you i know that you played <laughs> uh you toured a bit with cheap trick my understanding <laughs> is that you had to have a bass player because tom peterson had to pick up the guitar parts because uh, Rick Nielsen was too busy on stage playing with the crowd. Would that be <laughs> would that be an accurate uh, assessment of the band or oh, not? Oh, 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 I see what you're asking. I see, I see, yeah. I see. Okay. No, Tom was not in the band at the time. Gotcha. Uh, Tom had left. I, I did not play bass in the band. I played keyboards in that band. I played okay. I played synthesizer for a tour. Gotcha. Because I've I mean I've heard the stories that that it's Peterson playing the guitar live uh-huh. when Cheap Trick plays because no, Rick Rick no, just no, does no, what no, Rick that's, does. That, that's silly. All right. Well, good. I'm, no, I'm, Rick is a one. Rick is a wonderful guitar player. He's a brilliant guitar player, and uh, yeah, and and there's a reason why that band was so successful. It's the chemistry that that's that those four guys had together, yeah. you know, Bunny, Tom, Rick, uh, Rick and Robin, uh, that, that doesn't happen very often. No. And no. they just happened to be at the right time at the right place. I remember the first record, uh, the, the, the person that turned me on to them, uh, I, I was impressed that on their very first record, they covered a Terry Reed song. <laughs> so that's what, that's what brought me into their fold. Yeah. And uh, and I I became a fan early on. And then they used to open for Utopia. Oh, really? So Yeah. Mhm. Wow. So I mean I mean I I I've seen them a a, a number of times and I uh, in, and that and I agree with you that that first record is maybe one of the the best power pop records maybe ever released. I mean it's like every song on that record was great and the fact that it wasn't a hit is is surprising to me, but I always loved that well for the first two records for that matter. Uh-huh. Yeah, band. it was that third record that they really broke. Yeah, that's right. So I also read uh, some other interviews that uh, that you've done, you know, about the '80s. Now I, I'm old enough to remember 
the 80s, and I'm also old enough to remember that it was not a particularly healthy time for a lot of people. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, okay. And, uh, and, and certainly there were, there were, I know there were certain drugs shared from the very top of the record industry to some of the very worst radio stations in America and some of those stations I worked for. So I, uh, I know you've been sober for a, a very long period of time, but yeah, the 80s were kind of a decadent period in in music like it was almost a pervasive allowed permissible act back then um, it, it, it was not it, it, it wasn't even just that it was encouraged i mean you were you were considered an anomaly if you didn't use drugs <laughs> uh, you know or if you didn't make a spectacle out of yourself every now and then yeah <laughs> you, you were considered you know oh a goody two-shoes you know um and uh and so, uh, you know, if you had if you had the propensity to uh, to fall fall prey to that particular lifestyle, things got really ugly really fast. And for so many of us, that was the case. And uh, and thank goodness, most of us, the majority of us uh, managed to find uh, to find some way out of that mess. Uh, unfortunately, um, you know, a lot of us didn't, but, uh, you know, uh, sometime during the very late eighties and early nineties, it, it, it became as fashionable as it was to use drugs. It became ju- equally as fashionable not to use drugs. Yeah. And, and, and you know what I, mean? I, I do know what, what you mean? Cause, uh, I was, I was never the, the guy at the radio station that did all that, but I, I had people say, uh-huh. You're the only non-drug addict who I like, and I'm like, well, gee, I, I think <laughs> okay. that's a, I think yeah, that was well, a compliment. I, I I don't know, but uh, but I remember it being pretty pervasive, and I would imagine you know as you got a successful career going on, and and you are yeah. being asked to tour, and you are being asked to kind of be in the middle of of all of that. That had to be very difficult to try to you know maintain your health, but at the same time participate in your career in the in the way that puts food on the table um you know somehow uh somehow you managed to you managed to keep the candle burning at both ends for um as long as you possibly could and then it you know at at a certain point it just became um uh it it became apparent that 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 was not going to was it just wasn't going to last you just were not going to be able to to maintain that that level of dysfunction um, for long without doing some, some real damage to yourself and not only just yourself, but the people who care about you the most. And it also ultimately affects the work too. I mean, you can, you can certainly hear in some records where, you know, the band has kind of gone, you know, off the rails as opposed to the bands that are really, you know, focused and, and, and are, are there to make good art or great music. You can, you can, you can always, you could always tell the difference. Well, again, you know, it, it, it becomes a, a, a question of, you know, just how um, how susceptible you are to, you know, to, to that that lifestyle. And unfortunately, a lot of us were very, you know, very gullible and taken in and uh, and unable to uh, to say, no, I've had enough. Yeah. You know, with um covid and, and and quarantines and everything was the was the record made during covid or was were there parts of it that preceded it um 
So I started the record in 2019 with uh, with Phil. I on on a trip to London. Um, Phil and I have been uh, close friends and writing partners for probably the last 30 years. Mm. And um, and I was over there and visiting him and doing some other uh, projects. And he said, uh, you know, do you have any plans to do another record? I said, no, I, I, I'm not thinking about that right now. He said, well, do you have any uh, and are you working on any new material? Do you have any ideas that you're working on? And I played him a handful of, uh, of, of snippets of songs that I that I had started writing. And he said, we're going to do another record. You're, you're going to do. He kind of <laughs> he kind of gave me a, gave me a little boot in the behind and said, OK, let's do another record. And. And when Phil says, you know, says something like that to me, I I, I take it to heart because I I value his opinion and uh, and his guidance uh, so very very much. And you know, it just started probably I guess maybe September or October of 2019. I uh, we started writing. I went back over in January of uh, 2020. And uh, and then I went out on tour. So we had had we had about maybe six songs written and recorded uh, before the pandemic hit. Uh, and then the and then everything, uh, everything that we did after that was done uh, file sh- by file sharing. Now, uh, you're currently on tour with Todd Rundgren uh, now. In fact, I think you were just uh-huh. in, just in Boston and in Ridgefield, yeah. Connecticut. So. But uh, but how is that tour? I mean, you guys are going on for through what November, December? Yeah, uh, we're we are on the road. We just started actually. The first two first two shows in Boston, uh, and then the second uh, show uh, second two shows we did were in um, Connecticut. And uh, you know, I, I mean, it's it's a lot of fun. I love working with Todd. Um, he is uh, he's brilliant, and uh, he's. You know, he said sometimes it's a little difficult because he knows what he wants and how he wants things done, and I completely respect that. Um, I am the, the the longest surviving member of of his solo band, and uh, uh, and so th- this tour is kind of special because we go from um, uh, from the East Coast uh, out to the West Coast later on in uh, in the month, yep. and. Uh, yeah, it's just uh, it's a it's a lot of fun. It's it's a it's a great show. If we're in your town, you got to come and see it. That's awesome, Chasm. It's a it's a real pleasure. I really do like the the record a lot, Chasm twenty twenty one. It's it's uh, it's real infectious, and you you did some great work on this thing. Thank you so much, Bax. It was really a, a pleasure to speak to you, and I really appreciate your help and support. Absolutely, thank you very much, Chasm. Right, Best man. of luck. Take care. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, feel free to share it, review it, tell all your friends about it, and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, and Twitter. You can email me at Bax at rock102.com. I'd love to hear what you think. Thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.